Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of important emerging ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On this podcast, we revisit these ideas in new ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas we didn't necessarily come here expecting to discuss. I'm very happy to be here today with Amani al Katakba. She's the founder and editor of MuslimGirl.com, the number one Muslim women's blog in the United States. She regularly provides commentary on social, cultural, and political issues through outlets such as CNN, Al Jazeera, and the BBC, and has been featured in the New York Times, The Guardian, and made Forbes 30 Under 30 list. Her new book is called Muslim Girl, A Coming of Age. Welcome to Think Again, Amani. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I wondered if you could start with a brief story of MuslimGirl.com in case people aren't familiar with it. Why you started in the first place, what its rise was like, maybe some of the most interesting or controversial or pivotal moments when you realized what it was actually becoming. So MuslimGirl.com is a little project that I started in my bedroom when I was 17 years old. I was a high school senior. And I was just really pissed off by the way that I was being misrepresented in the media, the way that I felt like people like me were being just neglected from conversations that were taking place in the media right. uh, that were always about us, but never included us, right? Uh, and so I did what any pissed off millennial would do, and I took to the internet, and I took to social media, and I started Muslim Girl actually as a community on LiveJournal.com. Right. So LiveJournal is kind of like the predecessor of Tumblr, and uh, within its first five days of, of starting this community where people could join it if they want to talk about issues relevant to Muslim girls, we hit over a thousand members. So it kind of just notified me that, okay, there's an interest here. Like people actually care what we have to say. And there hadn't been a space that was solely for Muslim women. You know, there was plenty of spaces that were for Muslims, but they were always centered around any conversations that they had that were centered around Muslim women were on superficial topics, like how we should dress in public or if we should wear nail polish or not, things like that. And they were just completely irrelevant to my lived experience growing up post 9-11, uh, right. especially having been born and raised here. So, yeah, I started the website and it was always just like a hobby for us. It was on the back burner for me and my friends. We would update it regularly, like what it's like to be high school Muslim girls today. And then when we got to college, we started studying feminism. We started being introduced to intersectional feminism right. and these titans like Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks and whatnot. And then I think that Muslim girls started evolving with us and it started becoming more feminist analysis and reflections on what our lived experience is like. In 2014, I graduated from college from Rutgers, and I then formed a volunteer staff. So that's when we got an actual editing team together. That's when I really just started focusing on it as a publication rather than just this blog hobby of ours. Right. And it really just started taking off from there. You know, uh, we received our first republication request, or like our first major republication request from Fortune magazine. Uh, I think almost exactly a year ago now. It was like uh, in, in January 2015, and then from there we just started really cultivating a voice for ourselves in mainstream conversations that were taking place around Muslim women. And, you know, it just started to grow. And by the time, like by the time Subber rolled around, uh, I had gotten a job offer for uh, at another news network in New York City. I was living in DC at the time. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like uprooted my life, went to New York, and then the job fell through. So then I was like, I'm just gonna focus on Muslim girl. Um, and I started like hustling out of a room in, in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. And then by the end of the summer, we got 
major uh, profiles and credible publications that we never imagined we would be recognized in or get a voice in before. And by the following January, we became the first Muslim company on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. That's awesome. And the rest is history. So tell me if I'm mansplaining this correctly. Um, what, what, <laughs> I, what, I, what I, like, looking at Muslim, MuslimGirl.com and having read your book, what I see is that it's not so much that you guys are redefining Muslim girl identity or Muslim women's identity for this generation, so much as you are giving voice to all the different identities exactly. that real Muslim girls, like giving them a place to, to be themselves. Exactly. We're, yeah. we're literally just being ourselves. And we're allowing you know, non-Muslims and people outside of our community to just be on the outside of the bubble and look in. And I think that that's kind of what, that, that's been part of the magic of Muslim Girl, is that I think it's been a very unintimidating way for people to just learn more about who we are and what right. Islam really looks like on a day-to-day -day basis in our lives, um, what it stands for, what it means to us, and to just have access to that. We're kind of like that like Muslim friend that you never had, you know? <laughs> uh, and I, I like that because it's, it's like no pressure. Um, you know, we're not trying to proselytize over here. We're right. not trying to really do anything other than just have the conversations that we weren't given the opportunity to have growing up. Initially, when it was on Live Journal, it was subscription only, yeah, so that like you couldn't, people couldn't just crawl it and be a fly on the they wall. They had to be a member. So now it's, it's serving a function within that community, but as you say, people are also kind of able to be a fly on the wall and that's, yeah. you know, and see it as the Muslim friend like explaining what's yeah, going on. Exactly. I mean, we actually hyper policed our live journal community. We wanted it to strictly be women only because we wanted to maintain it as a safe space, but we did allow non-Muslims to be a part of it. Um, and part of that reason was because even that early on, we recognized that one of the main premises behind our project would be to eliminate stereotypes right. and to just flip like flip on its head what people assume about us and, and how we practice our religion. You write in the book about Muslim feminism, and I'm curious, like, I'd like to hear more about what that means to you, you know? What do, what do, you, mean, what do you mean by that term? Honestly, I think that feminism is just today's label of what Islam has been preaching ever since its inception. And that's why I refer to it as Muslim feminism, but to me that's just an oxymoron. Okay. Uh, I think like the premise of Islam it, it is based on gender equality. It's based on equality in all its forms, you know, whether racial or economic or otherwise. For its time, you know, at the time of its revelation, Islam was really just radical in the way that it bestowed new rights upon women that they didn't have before it, it came to light. And in can, that we, way, can we actually get sort of scriptural about that? I don't mean to yeah. inter interrupt you, but yeah, yeah, like yeah. specifically what rights does it confer? Yeah, yeah, I mean, well, that was kind of how the hut scarf started coming out, right? Like that's kind of how the, that was kind of the premise of it is that women don't deserve to be objectified and mm -hmm. that we need to look at them as human beings and for what's in their minds and not the way that they look. Mm -hmm. So the hut scarf was a mode of making those types of interactions on women's terms. Right. Um, and there's a lot behind, and that's something that not many people know even today about the hut scarf. They just view it as a tool of oppression. Right. Um, but there's so much within Islam that are just along those lines. One of my favorite things to tell people is that Muslim women are entitled, they're given the right in Islam to divorce their husbands if they're not sexually satisfied. Hmm. You know, much to, much to the like complete awe and shock of like a lot of men, you know, that kind of like puts the fear of God in some of them. But like, that's really just how much Islam has, has intended to just elevate women in our society. That's a Quranic like 
law. This is actually whatever, like, like yeah. it is an entitlement within yeah. our religion. Like it's every, you know what I mean? So, uh, and there's a lot of stuff like that, that it really just a Google search. It, that's all it takes is to discover this. So really the purpose that MuslimGirl.com serves is to draw attention to these conversations and to elevate them, cool. uh, especially amidst all this like static noise about who we are and what our religion means to us. So I might, I might piss you off now, but I went back to my Quran, like, because after reading your book and you had said, you, you, I had heard this statement that you'd made before about, you know, Islam conferring, being radical and conferring rights on women yeah. in, in its time. Mm -hmm. And I went, you know, this is a translation. It's A.J. Arbery, who was like the head of the University of Cairo for a long period of time. So one could possibly charge it with, I don't know, Western yeah. appropriation sure. or something. But and I don't have the surah in front of me, but it, it says pretty specifically, like, Allah gives your, the women to you because he gave you greater, a greater portion, as it were. And if they don't obey, then you can beat them. And like, that was pretty much the, now I don't know Arabic. And yeah. so, but I mean, there is that in there too. And I'm not saying that's unique to Islam. There's plenty of that in the Old Testament, right. et cetera, you know. But I guess, I guess what I, from my perspective, there's not, it's not like an unalloyed, feminist religion right. from its inception well, necessarily. It, honestly, I believe it is. I okay. think that a lot of that is is up to interpretation. I feel like a lot of the ways that Islam is interpreted today is used for political purposes, for social purposes, sure, sure. you know. Um, and when it comes to Quranic interpretations, for example, like, yeah, translations do lose a tremendous portion of their meaning. The Arabic language is just so multidimensional that mm. taking anything and putting it into English will rob it of a lot of its meaning. But in sure. context, any ayah that speaks to the rights that men have over women, especially like husbands and their wives, mm. have been tempered by the exact equivalent type of ayahs in the Quran that give equal rights to women over their husbands, for example, okay. or women over men. Um, and there are a lot of parts of the Quran that say that as well. I Like, for example, in, in a marriage, any income that the wife makes is solely her own. Mm. And the, male, the her husband isn't entitled to it. But okay. the woman is entitled to a share of the, her husband's income. And he is expected to provide it for the family unit as well. So it's like it's intricate details like that that I feel like are completely skirted over because the way that we choose to cover Islam really focuses on things that can be taken out of context, like an ayah like that, um, that can show that it is unequal or that it is like oppressive towards women and stuff like that. Um, when really I think that if whenever uh, an ayah like that exists, all it takes right. is to contextualize it and <clears throat> to really understand the meaning behind it to see the purpose that it serves. That makes perfect sense and that's pos quite possibly true. We'd have to probably go to the Arabic and spend a week on this to really <laughs> get down to it. But sure. I, but I guess, I guess what I'm, what I'm saying, and then I'll leave this subject, is that I think it's also possible within any system, yeah, for there to be uh, elements that are positive, elements that are negative. That it, that just because historically, like in the West right now, there are many reasons why Islam is misinterpreted and misrepresented. That makes perfect sense given, I mean, not it's not a good thing, but I can see why it has happened post 9-11 right. in the relationship that the U.S. has to the Middle East and the wider world. At the same time, outside of that context, outside of that political moment that we're living in, it is also possible within any system like Islam or Judaism for there to be difficult, problematic things that its members have to struggle with, yeah? So when you talk about Islamic feminism, I, I just wonder, actually, you know what? 
I've yeah. gone on and on, but I think what I'd like to do, if you don't mind, is have you read a passage from your book, sure. which I think is a segue into what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, I, I was kind of thinking about where I think you're headed right Okay, now. all right, so this is this is this bit to there, if okay. you don't mind. Sure, do you want okay. to read it? Uh, you, yeah, if you don't mind reading okay. it. One question that must be real. One question that Muslim girl often struggles with is that of a representation of Muslim women and their diverse struggles in other parts of the world. The truth is that Muslim women come from literally every walk of life, and being fully aware of our own Western privilege, we cannot possibly attempt to speak on their behalf. However, our privilege affords us influence that many women in other parts of the world do not possess. When we do not have the opportunity to uplift them into these spaces, the best that we can do is use our unique position to create an impact that we hope will ripple out. This is the premise upon which Muslim Girl was founded. Knowing that failed domestic and foreign policy has fallen on the mischaracterization of the Muslim woman's narrative, reclaiming it would alter the public's perception of our needs and opinions and cultivate a stronger presence for us in the public sphere. When that happens, especially as residents of the primary exporter of failed foreign policy in the Muslim world, we wield power to change policies that directly impact the lives of women abroad. We can never speak on their behalf or have our single stories represent their struggles, but what we can do is attempt to use our privileges to make radical change. So, uh, you know, I saw an interview and I saw your follow-up blog, like on, it's on Salon. You were pretty right. pissed off at the way that the, <laughs> the interviewer had Not kind so much of pissed off as uh, amused, you know. Right. Well, I mean, you you leveled a pretty clear critique against her for having essentially put you in the position of having to address violence in the Middle East or yeah. women's situations in the Middle East right. specifically. Based on what, what you just read, I wonder whether both things are true. Like, do you feel like you're, you don't want to co-opt the narrative of other women? I get that. Yeah. Are you at the same time, do you feel a responsibility within your own community, disregarding the fact that there's sexism in America, because there is, yeah, yeah. Is there a struggle going on for you within the narratives of Islam itself? W within my community? Yeah, that Absolutely you're trying to. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. That's the whole point, you know, and that's that's where Muslim feminism comes into play. Um, so when we do want to talk about the way that, for example, like the struggles of Muslim women in Muslim countries, right? right? In some Muslim countries, right. where the policy can be used to negatively impact them. You know, a lot of these fatwas, and what I'm getting at is that a lot of our modern understanding of Islam comes from these like patriarchal societies or are kind of like impacted by the people issuing these types of interpretations. Right. And that's why I feel that we as women, especially women that come from different walks of life, that's how we reclaim our religion. That's what we're entitled to, is to come up with our own interpretations of how these principles, how these Quranic verses apply to our own lives. And I think that's a power that has been bestowed upon us, like through our own religion. So within... I guess within Muslim theocracies, would that that would require ultimately, ideally, women to be imams or to be in the official position of interpreting? Yeah, exactly. Doctrine, and right? it, yeah. yeah, there's a huge movement right now for a lot of Muslim women scholarship, and it's very exciting stuff. And you know, right. and, and it's not just something that is exclusive to Muslim women, but also amongst Muslim millennials as well. You know, right. a, across the world, I, I've, for me personally, like I've witnessed a trend of a lot of these 
different margins within our community really carving out a space for themselves and, and taking Islamic principles and applying them to their unique lifestyles. And I think that's really the key. Um, and for me, I'm a political science student, right? So I studied mm -hmm. poli-sci when I was in college. And we learned that the Constitution is interpreted by the Supreme Court in one of two ways. It's either a dead document or a living, breathing document. Right. So we either look at the way, you know, the founders just made the Constitution and we apply it to today in that way, or we look at what the founders intended by the Constitution. Right. And then we, we formulate it to match our society today. And for me personally, that's exactly the same way that I look at the Quran. I see it as a living, breathing document, and it's one that can be shape-shifted to match our growing and evolving societies and changing times. Um, and I think that that is a shared sentiment by a lot of people in my age group. Uh, do you think that would entail like a formal reformation within Islam to the extent of the same sort you had with Martin Luther nailing the, you know, Lutheran doctrine to the to the not, Catholic not Church? Not at all, don't? actually, because okay. I, I really don't see issues that we're facing today as being inherent within the religion as much as they are problems amongst Muslims that are practicing or, or manipulating our understanding of that religion. Um, and that's really what I'm getting at. Totally, totally. No, I mean, the, the, the Christian Reformation like was in the context of a corrupt papacy, like where it was the, the human authority of the church had established certain practices. And then you had Martin Luther saying, you guys have lost the spirit of this thing. We need to interpret it as a living, breathing document. I guess that's what I meant. It became a political movement because you had to go against those theocracies, you know, and say. That's the thing, though. It's like Islam is so diverse that mm -hmm. there are there are parts uh, of, of the Muslim practicing okay. Muslims that are already doing this. Gotcha, there gotcha. are societies that are already doing this or cultures already doing this. But it's like there are <laughs> some Muslim communities, including ones that I'm part of, that are still like very conservative or are um, very like dead set in traditional understandings of certain Islamic concepts and stuff like that. And, you know, it's kind of like what you said uh, outside of the scope of what we're facing on a national or international scale. There are issues within the Muslim community itself, and those are sure. things that we take on, we take head on, even, and and that's our our primary, if not even that's our primary, prerogative. It's really really interesting. You're doing good work out there, it seems to me. Um, this is going to be a somewhat untraditional episode, uh, speaking of tradition, because your time is tight. So I think we're only going to get to which, watch probably one of the surprise clips if we want to have any real time to discuss it. Okay. So let's jump right in. Sure. This is. Oliver Luckett on Twitter, the 2016 election, and Divided America. We have to teach ourselves at a cellular level that this is bad, right? I start the book off with the Confederate flag, for instance. It took 150 years and a mass shooting in South Carolina for us and a guy, you know, draped in the Confederate flag saying he wanted to create a race riot, for us to suddenly realize that maybe that flag is racist. Maybe it's a symbol of hate. Maybe it's a symbol that we need to get rid of in our culture. And so it then takes us as individuals to learn that and to change ourselves and to not propagate that or to learn how to squash it out at a local level. And so I think the exact same thing that we're learning now with immunotherapy for HIV, for cancer, for all those things about teaching our body that this is bad. I think we're now learning that in our society of maybe the Heil Trump is a pretty terrible thing that we should squash out pretty quickly in our society and not let it happen. But had he not been there, that would stay underground. And would it fester? Would it get worse? I think there's a good moment that we're seeing this for what it is so that we can act upon it 
in a very organic, natural way and hopefully get rid of this in our society as fast as possible without letting it rise up and fester. And the notion that our media or us were surprised that 60 million people around us thought differently is a big warning sign. Who would be surprised that 60 million people thought differently if you were aware of what they were thinking and you weren't living in a bubble? So, so that's what I think is the biggest opportunity right now uh, with, with what we're seeing in this new social culture emerging. The first thing that comes to my mind is, is it so much as teaching ourselves that this is wrong or unlearning that this is okay, right? Because it's like, we don't have to look past children to see that, you know, like racism, for example, discrimination right. is a learned social norm. Uh, and it is one that is reaffirmed by the society in which it grows. So sure. I don't know necessarily if it's like something that, you know, like for me personally, I would love to focus way more attention on making people not learning that type or adopting that type of stereotyping or, or preconceived notion from the get go. But at this right. point, you know, with uh, where we stand as a country, I think that certainly there's a lot of things, a lot of things that we have to teach ourselves that uh, yet again, that they're just wrong. Um, but it's like, it's also a question of how effective is that? Because didn't we not spend the last several decades teaching ourselves that racism is wrong, you know? And it's like, one of the biggest setbacks of this election cycle has been, people have been repeating time and time again, is that it's made it socially acceptable to be racist again. Right. So it's like, what was the point of that entire movement, you know, especially since the 60s even, since the civil rights movement? Um, what was the point of all of that if it, all it took was just one year right. of us, you know, campaigning along the lines of all this hateful rhetoric to undo all of that and just set us back as, as a society? Um, and, then, and then again, you know, I'm also speaking from assumption. Right. Because did it really set us back as a society or did it just let the existing anomalies within our society just like rise to the surface? Um, because there was also uh, an image that it stands, it sticks out to me that came out immediately after the elections. Um, that was the Electoral College. It was a map right. of the country and where millennials voted, you know, like the young people. Right, right. And you just see that it's overwhelmingly a rejection of everything that the current rep campaign represented. So that's the future that we're headed in. So it makes me wonder, you know, like, where, where do we actually stand? Like, what is the real, what, what can be the actual litmus test of our country when it comes to race issues and it comes to understanding people who are different than us? That's a really good question. I mean, you know, I know Steven Pinker, like, um, who's, you know, I don't know what you'd call him at this point. He's sort of a philosopher, writer. He, I, I know he wrote a book called the better angels of our nature or something, which basically was a comprehensive study of human violence from ancient times to now, sure. which seemed to show statistically in a fairly convincing and nuanced way that that it's lessening, that humans are on the, the whole, yeah, that humans on the whole are evolving. I mean, we see these. The violence is lessening? Yeah, believe oh. it or not. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we see many, many anecdotal examples that would lead us to believe the opposite, right? I mean, the world looks. What, do you remember how he. He like measured that. Um, it's it's a like eight hundred page book, uh, so I, <laughs> I, I, I I we don't even have time to be. It's not a yeah. simple argument, but he but That's he shows. Yeah, and I mean it would be interesting, you know, you, you know, and I'm sure there are critiques of it as well. But he seems to have tried to do a pretty comprehensive uh, analysis. I the thing is, like, it seems to me maybe that racism, you know, you were saying racism is learned behavior. I think that's partly true. I also think it's sort of 
cognitively natural behavior in a messed up way because humans tend evolutionarily to identify with family and like, you know? Yeah. We're pretty tribal on right. some levels. So it feels like it's actually an evolution for us to but, get but who decided that. who decided that it would be like white people that would be the superior like dominant culture? Oh, I mean, white people did when they right. conquered so other people. Isn't that kind of like a manufactured type of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I it, it, look. It didn't have to be. It didn't have to be white people. What I'm saying is, it could have gone historically differently. That it, it, you know, it could have been had history gone in a completely different direction, uh -huh. and it had been brown people, you know, and who had conquered, and white people who had been the minorities. Then you would have had the opposite situation. And I feel like that's. I feel like humans are tribal. I feel like we have to struggle against othering each other. Do you follow me at all? Like, yeah, uh, no, I, I follow you. Um, I'm not sure if I necessarily agree. I don't even. I'm not even sure if I like 100% yeah, yeah, like yeah. understand. Right, like the premise. W but like what you're getting at. I, I want to go into that, it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't want to just sure. leave it there. Yeah. I don't know. I, guess I don't know if I can if I can co-sign to that, my friend, because it's like <laughs> like when I think about it, it's just it's so much regarding like power relations plays into it. So much regarding like resources and stuff like that about the way that we perceive who the other is and the way that we perceive, you know, like who's superior and who sure. is like at the top of the totem pole and stuff. It seems like inevitably it ha it has to be something that's learned, right? Like, well, I, guess I, I don't what think I'm saying, that we're like born and we, we feel like you see I, I, all those photos of like, like the, the cute Getty images of like the white and black babies that play with each other and racism right. doesn't exist, sure. you know, and stuff like that. So it's like, it makes me wonder you know, I, you know what it is. Sure. So it's it's not. Yeah. I, I guess what I mean is not. It's not that like color-based racism. You know, but, skin but we color opt for like connecting in with group groups. versus out right. group. Yeah. Right, right, so right. if as a baby you are surrounded by babies of yeah. different colors from you, that is normal. And yeah, that's but then who tells local, you? Who you tells know? you that your you and your group of babies is better than that group and their babies? You know what I mean? Like uh, I feel like that that point needs to be something that's like. I, taught to us or adopted. Yeah, I mean, we could go back and forth on this, but I mean, a lot of psychological studies seem to show that people do that naturally too. Like even little babies that they like, what they recognize, what's familiar versus what's unfamiliar, that yeah. the emotional affective response, even before they're like old enough to have language, yeah, but you identifies I mean? self and other, you know, uh, like. Yeah, of course, but see, that's the thing, right? It's because it's like, if that's the case, then I feel like logically the, the direction that would go in is that if we're grouping ourselves together based on likeness, right. then we're automatically going to assume that we're like better than the other groups, right? It's like our group is superior, our group is like whatever. But that, we know that that's not the case. We know, especially in neocolonialism, there are entire countries that still adopt this like feeling of inferiority compared to others, or they're, because of the way that they are treated or that they are received. You know, I, and that's right. something that I speak about in my book. Like even me, just growing up through my school system, I had this innate feeling of inferiority, okay. and like I was less than the people around me. You so, know? so, so here's here, here's my response to that. I sure. think I think that. Probably, I mean, again, we're in total theoretical land, yeah, but yeah. I think like <laughs> I think if you have like some you know imaginary space where humans are living in tribal groups, yeah. somewhat separate from each other, yeah. right? That that the maybe the natural state of affairs, I could be wrong, is that people are identifying with their their tribal in group, primarily, 
because that's who they know, yeah. you know, that they cognitively naturally kind of bond to their little group. And then anyone else that comes in, they, they'll be at least suspicious of, if not consider themselves superior to. But then when you have a circumstance where one group conquers the others, then that's when you end up in these power dynamics that you're talking exactly. about. Yeah. See, and that's the thing, it's like, the only way that you can possibly even have this experiment is if power is removed entirely as a factor. It's, which is almost inevitable, right? right. Because it's like... You mean like, impossible, right? Like, you're, you're, you're trying to say it's, you couldn't remove power. Like, yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. like, it's almost impossible to do that. Yeah. Like one, one study that my mind immediately goes to is the Stanford prison experiment, Sure. right? And it's like these two groups of equal students were just literally separated and right. one was told that they, were, they had more power over the other and then they just let them go. And you see right. how that manifested itself with the, the group with more that was told they had more power, the way they completely oppressed, humiliated, violated the group with the less power, right? right. So it's like when, when power is part of the factor, it inevitably impacts who believes is superior to who and the way that they treat each other and stuff like that. Um, and unfortunately, you know, regardless of the, the hypotheticals and stuff, that's kind of like the arena that we're navigating right oh, now. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So. Well, even within any given sort of in-group, there's going to be power dynamics right exactly. from the get-go. Exactly, you know? yeah. Yeah, interesting. You know, I, you've said many times, and I think that, and that makes a lot of sense to me, that you, you don't want to be in the position and that Muslim, Muslims are continually put in the position of speaking for all Muslims. Mm -hmm. um, but I wonder sort of where you're at anyway, personally, with respect to this divided America right now. I mean, do you see... Is it for you that like half the country are racists and the other half are, you know, is that is that the situation? Is it like because we're hearing all kinds of narratives now, you know, like, oh, these people have been, you know, the, the coastal elites, the this and the that. Like, where are you at uh, with all of it? Like, is it a, what's the picture of our situation right now? <laughs> honestly, I feel like I'm still trying to figure it out right now. You know, because uh, especially given everything that I just said regarding like the youth vote and stuff like that. Right. I honestly don't want to believe that, you know, half of our country is racist. I think there are a lot of factors that it went into this election and why it went the direction that it did. Right. Um, that it doesn't necessarily reflect the actual makeup of our nation. Uh, but at the same time, I do think that the climate right now, the atmosphere is exceptionally discriminatory and is exceptionally violent towards minority communities at the moment. Right. And that's just the, the case of it. And that, that's different, right? Because that, that cultivates a sense of security or uh, like for, for people to exert those negative uh, notions out in public or it makes it feel like there won't be accountability if they were to take action on, you know, whatever sentiments that they harbor. Um, and I think that's really like the danger of it because it does take a minority to you right. know, elicit extreme violence against a, against a people, you know, like we literally see that happening with Muslim terrorists, right? Sure. Who are like literally such a minuscule minority, but are just wreaking such tremendous havoc on, on humanity at the moment. And, you know, that's the thing. It's like, we, we can't accept it. We can't be okay with it. Like we can't allow a space for that in our society. We shouldn't let anyone feel that it's okay for people to act on 
these like violent sentiments or these attitudes towards one right. another and that's what what our concern is and you know like i said even before the election happened one thing that i that i've been saying is that regardless of who wins we are going to have to spend years you know like repairing the damage from this election cycle because the damage has already been done. Civil rights organizations, even before the polls happened, have been saying that the current political climate against Muslims hasn't been this bad since immediately after 9-11. We saw an escalation right. of hate crimes targeting the Muslim community, especially veiled Muslim women in public. This has all come to a tipping point, especially after Donald Trump was elected. Uh, so really, like that's where my concern lies. It's like it's less about the numbers and you know what part of our, our country is racist or whatever, but it's more so how much are we going to let people get away with? You know? So what about yes? Yeah, so so sure. what about this, like, you know, kind of connecting to his argument, the idea that somehow having all this out in the open with whatever the, not that anyone would have wished anyone on, yeah. I don't know, my side of the fence anyway, and probably yours, would have wished for um, Trump to be elected, but, but him having been elected and us seeing all of this out in the open, creating opportunities to actually address and talk about it, not only through swift and punitive measures which yeah. should happen against anyone perpetrating hate crimes, but also conversations of some kind with whatever white Americans there are out there who seem to believe that their culture is under siege, which is like, yeah, I mean, you know. I, I'll be honest with you. I think that, that, that tugging at straws to see a silver lining is absolute bullshit. <laughs> I don't think okay. that it's a positive be, because ask any person of color in this country and they will have already told you like, yeah, people are racist. Racism still exists. This right. isn't a post-racial society. Right. But it took, you know, this hateful rhetoric, this co-signing of hateful sentiment against us to happen on a national level for people to start wanting to have these conversations. You know what I mean? No, like, I get it. I it's, get, it's at our expense I, and I, I think that's unfair. I totally get that. I totally get that. Just I to guess, say that it's like out in the open makes it easier to target or whatever. Like it's it's not because isn't that what we've been working so hard towards? It's to make it not okay for it to be out in public and for it to impact our livelihoods in this way. Well, no, I guess so. Here's what I'm saying. I guess I'm not talking about I'm not talking about like Nazis who are like you know everyone different from us. I hate. I'm talking about those weird points on the cultural spectrum where people don't like live in the middle of nowhere. I, I'm, I don't, I'm not apologizing for them. Right. They don't know any Muslim people. They are only being inundated with very biased, very yeah. like lurid reports from the news, right? right? And they're not whatever, educated enough or whatever it is to go beyond that and try to like read the Quran and actually meet, you know, figure right. out what's going on, right? And so then, you know, not that like anyone this the muslim community or any other minority community should have to absorb their bullshit in order to get over it but that like since you can't just dump half of america into the ocean that maybe this then sparks conversations of some kind that might change some people's minds in ways that make things better. I'm not but saying like that's that, the thing though. Like 9/11 yeah. sparked those conversations. Yeah, yeah. And like it didn't the Muslim get better, community yeah. has been working tirelessly yeah, yeah. to to capture those people, to reach out to them, to eliminate these stereotypes, to push us forward and progress right. in our understanding. And yet, you know, these are the people that you're talking about that elected Trump. Yeah, yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like so what, your position at this point is kind of like screw them. Like we we should fight. My my position at this point is more so that we need to focus on ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And and that's honestly the philosophy yeah, 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 yeah. that Muslim girl has had since its inception. Got it's you. like. We're not trying to pander to anyone. We're not trying to cater to any conversation that's taking place outside of our community or answer any questions. 
we just want to take a moment to turn inward and cultivate our own identities, build our own backbone, understand who we are and have the conversations we need to have amongst ourselves. And I'm hoping that's the direction that the Muslim community as a whole goes in. Because honestly, like that's the best thing that we can do for ourselves right now. It's like right. build those institutions, like build ourselves up, you know, understand who we are as a community first and foremost within the context of 2017 America, um, and then move forward. We can't reach out and have that understanding unless we do build that foundation for ourselves. Um, and you know, I, I don't think it takes more than looking looking beyond the past decade and a half to see that that it really just you know even given everything that we have done and that we've attempted to do to promote greater understanding and tolerance, uh, a moment like this was still able to take place. Amani Al Katatba, it has been very fun and illuminating and 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 great having you on the show. Thanks so much Thank for being here. Thank you. Likewise. And that wraps up our very first episode of Think Again for 2017. We have lots of really interesting and diverse guests already lined up for the coming weeks and uh, unknowns beyond that, which is always very exciting for me personally. Um, I hope that you all have big plans and projects that you're looking forward to for this coming year and I'd love to hear about them. You can always email me at jason at bigthink.com. And if you haven't had a chance to do it, it would mean a lot to me if you could take just a minute to rate or review the show on iTunes or Spotify or iHeartRadio or wherever you're listening. It, it makes a very big difference in terms of who hears us. Uh, we'll be back next week with another fascinating conversation and hope to have you here with us.